1: You're listening to Perpetual Traffic.
0: Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is your host, Ralph Burns, and I am really excited. I'm joined here today by Amanda Powell yet again. Welcome back, Amanda. Thank you.
1: Always excited. Always excited to be
0: here. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And we're pretty psyched to have a guy here that, depending on how long you've been in this industry, the digital marketing kind of industry gig, internet marketing You might know this guy, but you might not. We've got some younger listeners here because he's the guy who's probably trained a lot of the people that you've learned from, or maybe the people that they've trained after that. So he's an OG in the space of internet marketing, digital marketing, knows marketing extremely well. We worked together. We just sort of found out five or six years ago in some odd project, and now here he is finally on perpetual traffic to talk about some of the things that are going on right now in your world and how you can transition your business and capitalize on the opportunities in today's market. And there's nobody more qualified to talk about this than none other than Rich Sheffron. So Rich, welcome to Perpetual Traffic. Man, it's great to have you on. Uh, Long time coming here. And yeah, we're really excited to talk about what you're doing.
2: I can now cross it off my bucket list. Uh, (laughs) I've now achieved another one of the milestones that will let me go to my grave. um, But you've been Content. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. And you're only one behind
0: Ryan Dice, who's only been on the show twice. So I'm like,
2: it's his show. (laughs) So you're
0: right there. Even though you trained Ryan or you coached Ryan, we'll talk about that. So Rich, maybe just give the listeners a little bit of an idea as to your background, how you got to where you're at right now a lot of the things that you've done through the years and also the, in particular the transition from sort of the offline world to the online world, which you're really better known there. And then we'll talk about sort of some of the challenges that some businesses are facing right now with this strange thing that we're dealing with in the world called coronavirus. So yeah, maybe just a little background and uh, we'll kind of take it from there.
2: Well, it was a long, cold day in 19. 19- no, just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, although I will say, this is a subject line about my childhood, although we won't have time to go into it, but the perspective might be useful later on. Mm-hmm. My childhood equals goodfellas plus the wolf of wall street so my childhood intersects with both of those two movies um but we're not probably going to talk about that today it's a
1: great subject line
2: yeah, so i was in the fashion business and in the music business and that was basically my dad had a store he was going to close it it was failing it wasn't his main business it had six months until the lease ran out and since it was losing money he was going to close it i said you know what? let me drop out of college and take it over. And if I can turn it around in those six months, I will pay you back for any losses that you had over those six months. And then that point forward, we'll be partners. That's what happened after I took it over. We were the first store to bring diesel into the United States and a bunch of other brands that are pretty well known now. And one day it occurred to me that in retailing, it's all about maximizing your sales per square foot. And so it occurred to me that I was filling my airspace with music that I couldn't sell. So we started licensing music, and I think we were one of the first stores to do that. That sold so well that then we put a recording studio right in the middle of the store, because it's a big store, and we started recording electronic music, and that was during the rise of electronic music. So people like the Chemical Brothers recorded there, and most of the big DJs recorded there. Jeff Mills, Sasha and Digweed, if people know electronic music, uh, they might know those names. Anyway, After I realized I never wanted to be in a family business, which we won't go into those stories now, I gave the store and the music company to my family, took a year or two off, read an article in Time Out magazine about a hypnotist. And I'm an insatiably curious person. I had never been hypnotized. And so I wanted to get hypnotized. You know, I'm also low key and somewhat of an introvert. So the idea of like participating in a stage show hypnosis thing was not going to happen for me, but I went for this hypnosis appointment and lo and behold, I'm highly hypnotizable. So I had this profound experience, which was fascinating to me. So I started studying hypnosis, then what I naturally do, I guess, because I'm more of a business oriented person. I decided to make that a business that ultimately grew into a chain of hypnosis centers, but not immediately. And what happened immediately as I started to undergo this kind of building this business, I thought I knew marketing and I thought I knew, you know, PR and stuff like that. Because when I left the store, it was like the hot store in Manhattan, a lot of celebrities shop there, like, et cetera. Right. So I thought I was like this marketing whiz. And what happened though was as we ran ads to get the phone to ring for our hypnosis centers, what happened was, is that the more I liked the ad, the worse the ad did, the more I was embarrassed by the ad, the better it did. And very quickly, I realized I really know nothing about advertising as it is designed to actually make something happen. And so that I didn't even know at the time. There was something called copywriting or direct response that took me a while to learn this. But over time, we took an ad that like when we ran a full page ad in the uh, daily news, we would get, when we first started about 40 phone calls and we could barely kind of make a little profit off of that. But over time, through split testing, because we could do A-B splits in the newspaper, over time we got those full page ads to generate about 400 to 450 phone calls, so about 11 times, and that made the business insanely profitable. So we went from one location to two locations, from two locations to three locations, we were building our fourth, and that's when 9-11 happened. And when 9-11 happened, we were in Manhattan. So uh, FEMA actually took our phone lines, which was less than ideal because we were a business that was a direct response business, but with a offline footprint and therefore expenses, right? Big employees, big rents, big all that. And so that opened up a really difficult time in my life, about a year as I wound down the business. I, as an entrepreneur, I had a decision to make. I could totally retrench and then rebuild the business, which would seem like the most horrible thing that I would ever have to do because as an entrepreneur to do the same thing a second time is just like to say goodbye to the team members that I had spent years acquiring to say goodbye to all of them to hopefully find someone who's good was not appealing to me. And so I was busy during this time though, making payroll every two weeks. And that ended up really kind of, souring me to the idea of employees that, you know, we had about 60 full-time hypnotists, a little bit over a hundred employees. And I think the payroll was a little north of 5 million a year. You know, every two weeks, I had to come up with well over a $100,000 in payroll. No, you know what, I'm sorry. The payroll was about $2.5 million a year because it was about a 100,000 every two weeks, not every week, right? So the 100,000, every two weeks i'd be slowly climbing back up to that and then watch that all disappear and then slowly climb back up to that and watch that disappear so around that time i started seeing i was exploring different stuff and i knew i liked direct response like that had been fun moving you know the ads from 40 calls to 400 calls and during that time it had put me in touch with people like gary halpert and Jay Abraham and Dan Kennedy, and for those that don't know those names, those are like the legends of direct response in the entrepreneurial world. And when I was looking at the internet, I saw that this was all direct response at the end of the day at that time. And there were all these ads about like checking your laptop for an hour a week from the beach with no employees. I kind of dreamed that that could be true, so much so I kind of suspended all disbelief and just dove in headfirst. I struggled for about the first year or two because I really thought I could grow a business with no employees and didn't really get very far because there are a lot of things I'm not good at. And so, you know, it took me a while, but I've been keeping a journal since I've like my early 20s. And I remember one night I was kind of bitching in my journal about the lack of success I'm experiencing online. And I started to like draw out all the things I was doing and responsible for my business And I had this epiphany while drawing it out how ridiculous the situation was as far as me trying to do all these things. And that drawing eventually made it into a report I wrote years later called the Internet Business Manifesto. It was called the U Diagram that got passed along a lot. But it was started in my journal really realizing that online business is not that much different than offline business. And just like when I had my stores, I didn't design the clothes, sew the clothes, bring up the clothes, like, you know, do all that. And in the hypnosis business, I was the first hypnotist, but as soon as I could get out of that role, because I'm not the world's best hypnotist, you know, I got out of that role. So it was kind of silly for me to try and be everything in my business. Right. And so that started this process where then I became somewhat successful online. First in the parenting niche, I had about like 30 eBooks, like how to teach your toddler to walk, how to teach your baby to sleep through the night, you know, all that kind of stuff, how to teach your baby sign language, right. Started with a book on baby modeling because both my daughters were baby models. One of them was actually the face of, um, Downey, $100,000 contract, like uh, her picture on all the boxes and everything. It was my ex that was very attractive. And then I... Always the combination of the... Day. Yeah, right. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. Then, you know, I had known Jay because he had done some work for me, Jay Abraham, with the hypnosis centers and... I thought it would be a good time to bring Jay online because he had been offline still and hadn't really had any presence online. So we did some things together with another partner of mine at the time. And that really started my entrance into the marketing world. I then realized that in the marketing world, that was all that was being taught. And that was all that was really being taught about business. And that while marketing is probably the most important part of business, it's not the only thing. It's actually, you know, one of many even though it's the most important. And so I started a coaching program. You know, there's more to it than this, but the gist of it was is that, like I started a coaching program, I think the first business coaching program online, teaching people like really about how to grow an online business. And that was the program that Ryan was in. So I didn't teach Ryan marketing and I don't want anyone to think that. He was a great marketer. (laughs) But no, he was a great marketer before I ever met him. And I probably learned a lot of marketing from him. But what I did teach him was how to get out of his own way. And that was a lot in the beginning. There were these great marketers, usually in almost every business, the constraint is not the operations, the constraint is marketing, creating demand for it, right? I had this unique group of clients in the beginning of my business where they all were great marketers, but actually their ability to execute and grow a business was actually holding them back, not their ability to market. So because of that, I had insane growth for my clients. Once again, not because I was some genius, but because they already had the skills, the hardest skill, I was giving them some of the easier skills, right? Like how to produce a product or stuff like that, right? And so that grew really fast. And then I would say what put me into the limelight, because even then I was just like kind of behind the scenes coaching a bunch of people, but no one really knew who I was. I had this project with Agora Publishing three months after I had finished like my second group of coaching clients, right? Because I did this like long program. And I was hoping to get like a dozen, 10 to like a dozen clients to do a very short coaching program, an 11-week coaching program, so that in three months, I would have the open space to do this big project with this company, Agora. And so I wrote this report, and I put it up on my blog, and surprising to me and to everyone else, I guess, who knew me at that time, that report went viral. And so instead of getting 10 clients, I had all of a sudden, thousands upon thousands of clients or thousands and thousands of people that wanted to become my client. There were millions of dollars sent into my PayPal account. And for anyone who knew me, there's life before I wrote the manifesto and life after I wrote the manifesto. Right. And what I was telling Amanda a little bit earlier on is that because that worked so well, I then wrote a series of reports over 18 months, like from 2006 to almost to 2008. And, Those reports were more about like what businesses were doing wrong. That was like the manifesto series. Then I wrote two attention age doctrines. That's what they were called. Attention age doctrine one and two. The first one was about how attention was going to become the scarcest commodity online. So I think I called that right. And then the second one was... Hey, I figured out where people's attention is going to go. I think it's going to go to this new thing, social media. Um, (laughs) And so I feel pretty confident that I got that one right. And then then I wrote another report with Jay Abraham about becoming the authority in your market because he was behind more offline gurus than anyone else. And I was behind more online gurus than anyone else. And then my final report was the entrepreneurial emergency, which was all about constraints and then sold the program called uh, that's based around theory of constraints. And so where do you want to take, because I know we talked a lot of stuff off camera first, and I want to make sure that I hit everything that's useful for people. Well, I
0: think from a business perspective, it's like, you know, you've you've got a lot of experience, not only in your own business, offline, online, you know, through coaching and through a, a lot of the influence that you have, like, From your perspective right now, like having seen a lot and having made that transition from the offline world to the online world, that was something that we had discussed prior to hitting record today. It's like that's something that people are struggling a lot with right now. And, you know, most of your coaching customers are online marketers, but a lot of them, everyone at one point was offline. If they were in business 20 plus years ago, they eventually went to either some form of online, either a hundred percent or a percentage of it. And I think a lot of folks right now in our current situation are realizing, holy crap, I don't really have an online presence. All I had was physical. And how do I make that shift? And what kind of things would would you suggest or at least teach people that are trying to make that shift right now. Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Because a lot of people are struggling with it.
2: Sure. So the first thing I would say is I'd love to just give like a quick little story or anecdote that I learned from uh, Dan Kennedy. So it's his story, not my story. Um, (laughs) He talked about how he grew up in Canton, Ohio, and that the weather in Canton, Ohio is not like Miami right? Or Austin. Um, and and, uh, And so there was this one place in Canton, Ohio that for New Year's was the place to be. And people would make reservations like six months out. And the bar would be like four deep on New Year's Eve. That was the place to be. And Dan, this is when he was growing up, was friends with a couple other kids that were the valet parkers for that restaurant. And the night before New Year's Eve, these valet parkers would be praying for the worst weather possible, you know, hail, snow, sleet, whatever, because if there was really bad weather, their tips would go up about 400%, right? (laughs) Because there's a lot more value in parking a car when there's a storm out than when it's nice and sunny out. And so, right now, we're in a storm. And that Storm gives entrepreneurs the opportunity to actually increase the amount of value they're providing, not decrease it. And so that's like, you know, every business at the end of the day is about providing value to their end consumer. And right now, as an entrepreneur, as a business, you actually have the ability to provide more value you know, depending on your situation and what your business is about. So I've had lots of discussions with lots of different businesses over the last couple of weeks. You know, some are like I was being interviewed yesterday for a bunch of copywriters and for copywriters, I was like, this is a golden time. Like, don't think anything other than that. Mm -hmm. Like this now is the chance to get more business than ever before. Earlier before we hopped on, Ralph, you were telling us about a business that was more in like the seafood business, right? Mm -hmm. And they're mostly offline. Well, like if I'm that seafood business, there happen to be a lot of really high-end meat businesses. My friend just recommended, like I order some steaks from this company and I was all gung-ho to do it until I realized, that it's like the kind of steaks that they serve at a New York steakhouse, right? Like it's like this thick, right? And uh, you know, like an inch and a half for people who are listening, and an inch and a half thick. But when I realized that the prices were like the same prices for the raw meat as what you pay in a New York steakhouse, like fifty bucks for you know a one pound piece of meat, I was like I don't know if I want to buy that. But they have a big audience, and there are other. Meat sellers who have those kinds of, you know, at all different ranges. If I'm running that seafood business, I'm trying to figure out how I can leverage someone else's distribution channel right now and, you know, cut them in for a big piece because to leverage their distribution channel, whether that's in partnership or joint venture. But, you know, in times like this, sometimes you have to be willing to forego some share of the profit to be able to make an offer to another company who already has those distribution channels or already has expertise that you don't have to be able to enter in because now's not the time if your business is in trouble to, undertake a new initiative. right? Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that you can't get the same outcome. I've always kind of operated from the belief that whatever's missing in my business is not missing in the world. It's just missing for me. And there's someone out there that has that. And if I can make a deal with them, then that piece is no longer missing for my business. And I've thought about that not only in the micro sense, but even in a macro sense, like if I have a 10-year vision of what my business could be, Well, my business might be able to be that in a month from now if I was able to cut the right deals, right? So I've always tried to do that. And I would say now more than ever is the time to do that. Another quote, and I don't know who it's from, but it's been attributed to me because I've said it so often. It certainly... wasn't one I came up with. You can take um, for <laughs> that. Well, I'll let people give me credit for it. And then hopefully no one hears this part that I'm not taking credit for it. But um, <laughs> that a recession is merely a transference of wealth from the meek to the bold, Right. And I truly believe that. And that's why I probably said it so often. Like right now, I, you know, the primary part of my business is helping online businesses. And I have not spoken to an online business that, that is even flat everyone's telling me this is the best weeks of their business life, right? That the traffic costs less than it ever has. And in my 20 years online, like I have never seen advertising costs go down. I've only seen them gone up. Even in the recession of 2007 and eight, they continued to go up. They didn't go down. And so this is the first time that I'm aware of where actually advertising costs have gone down and that conversion rates have remained steady or have grown right? So this is really a righteous time if you're an online business. And if you're an offline business, there's probably a deal to be done with someone who has the distribution channel that you've neglected. And that's probably going to be the fastest way to get something going. And I know that, you know, if you're worried about making payroll, and you're worried about all these things, speed is really of the essence. So that's where you got to kind of have to think about. But you know, like all those meat companies, they all have email lists, and it costs them nothing to recommend a seafood that's comparable to their service and you know for a piece of the profits right so the deals need to be done and now's the time to do it and i would imagine both sides would be very receptive right like you should be willing to give up something and the other side should be looking to leverage what they've already put in place i know i would be
0: yeah i mean i go back to the early 30s you know jp morgan was an, a buyer he was buying businesses during the depression. Now, I think that's an extreme example, but like I look at it that way. and I try to talk to all of our customers the same way. What can you do in this time, not to be opportunistic in like a sleazy sense, but to seize the opportunity? And even if that means like with some of these offline businesses, it means making payroll. You know, maybe not making the profits that you were making three to five months ago or even a month or so ago. It's just being... Nimble enough to be able to either tack on another distribution channel, like you're talking about that, with a like some kind of joint venture with another company that has the audience for you, and you're at least able to expand your product offerings, but maybe not look for all right, that's going to be the thing that's going to drive my profits at least right now, but at least I can keep my payroll. You were talking about making you know payroll a hundred thousand dollars like every couple of weeks, like that's a big deal. I mean, companies now are laying people off because they have no other ways in which to do it. And, you know, this could be small businesses, large businesses, you know, small payrolls, big payrolls. It doesn't matter what it is. But the point is, is like, I think depending on where your niche is, I think you have to be realistic about, okay, what can I do now that's outside of my comfort zone? And how can I do it fast? Right? Right.
1: I mean, I think even if it's not perfect, I think you made a really good point that it's such a big opportunity right now. And I think People in general right now are willing to accept something that's not exactly perfect. You know, even shopping online right now, you can see like our shipping time is going to be extended or our time to get you your to go order might be a little bit longer than usual. But if you like even just look on social media right now, people are going to accept that. So if you do pivot and it's not perfect, I don't I think right now is the perfect time to even try it. And see if it'll work, particularly to the online, you know, and digital marketing space, because people right now are willing to give it a shot. And especially, you know, I've seen this in Austin a lot. People want to support the smaller and local businesses. So when you are jumping in and trying to try something different, people are actually looking to your business to see if they are able to support you in a way that you might not might not have been selling
0: before.
2: Yeah. Otherwise, absolutely. Yeah, I agree 100%. And it's really like, I would say that the only thing that people should be have a caveat for is not betting too much on any one thing. Like now's the time to place lots of little bets and then see if any of those show payoff and then immediately seize upon it. Because if your business is on the line, you don't want to bet it all on green or red or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah. You want to you make a few little bets yeah. and then whatever shows life, then jump all in. Because, uh Yeah. It just really, you're not sure, you know, customer psychology has changed a little bit right now. So also like what might've been true two Mm -hmm. months ago might not be true today. And yeah, if it was my money, I'm trying to make those little bets and seeing which one is showing life. And then I'm going all in on that because you eventually do have to go all in on something most likely if you want to really pivot your business and save a business that is primarily offline. And if you're already online, it's just about moving resources from offline to online. And I would say that like when it comes to most offline businesses, I think most offline businesses will rebound. I think like, you know, restaurants will, hotels will, the travel industry will. I'm not so sure about retailing. I think what this has done, you know, this pandemic has just accelerated what was already happening. So the newspaper industry is gonna die even faster. The retail industry is probably gonna die a little faster. I have that retail experience, so I know how important it is to have like new items in your store and most awards right now are sitting closed, which means all the inventory is growing stale. It doesn't matter if that's food or that's clothing, new sales and an old doesn't. And so I think retailers are just going to be in for a whirlwind of trouble. And hopefully not too many big retailers are listening to this show. And if you are, now would be the time to hit the check button in my opinion. So, I mean, it's really, it's just speeding up sort of a natural
0: slow progression that's been happening, especially with retail versus e-commerce. I mean, look at the growth of Amazon. I mean, come on, like it's the, it's the thing that's staring you right in the face. I mean, they are obviously the 800 pound gorilla in the space, but if you're an offline retailer and you're you don't have an online presence. I think this is exposed that we have to be fair here because I mean there's lots of businesses they just don't lend themselves well to online for whatever reason. I I get that. But the point is like this whole process like what you're saying it's just sped up this whole sort of cycle which was probably going to happen anyway. It just put it into warp speed, right?
2: Yep. Totally agree and I would say the only thing that's like bad about that is that I, I think big tech was in for some tough times because of the monopolistic practices they have. And this is kind of just put all that, like there are there are all 50 states, attorney generals are suing Google, Facebook for data privacy <laughs> violations and all these things. And they need to be held accountable for those things. Like if you do the reading, they've done some really horrible things, sometimes at the expense of smaller businesses. But yeah, that's probably all going to be forgotten about for quite a period of time. And even more so why you need to get your business online today, because the easiest time to grow your business online was yesterday. The second easiest is today. And it only gets harder each and every day. So, you know, the time to jump is now
0: especially on social, I mean, it is crazy, like you had mentioned it, is that traffic prices from we see, like we spend $100 million a year on Facebook ads, like we're seeing 30 to 50% less CPMs, but we are seeing tremendous surge in like, lots of clicks. Okay, mm-hmm. so there's lots of people who are clicking, not as many are converting, like we're seeing a surge in clicks, but the conversion rates because of so many clicks, the conversion rates are decreasing, but In actuality, they're probably about the same as to what you said. It's like there's more people that are online. There's a surge in people on their phones, on all these apps, but the traffic is so cheap right now. And if you're in a niche where people really do want you, like this, you know, this seafood company, it's like now is the time. It's like if you can get online even just monetizing your website custom audiences you know your your warm traffic at the very least and you know they just started that company that i was just talking with just started their own online store thank god they did it you know three or four months ago great for them they can now take orders perfectly positioned and that's the reason why we're working with them but it's like if you take that into consideration now, it's like you have to speed up the entire process. Don't do it just because of this whole thing. But if you're not online, you should be online. And this should be your impetus to change. Because otherwise, provided we get through this in some period of time and out the other end, your business, if you do it right now, it's going to be better off at that point.
2: Totally agree. And I would just add to that that like one of the things I wrote about in the Attention Age Doctrine too, when I was talking about the rise of social media and what I thought the implications were, one of the implications that I felt was important, and I followed it, and I think a lot of people didn't perceive it correctly because they kind of mislabeled what I was saying as word-of-mouth marketing, and I wasn't saying that. What I said was is that you have to realize now that prospects are not only targets, but they're also your best channel, and word of mouth is more having your customer share your message. For me, and one of the reasons why a lot of my stuff went viral was not that my customers were sharing it, but my prospects were sharing it right? So if CPMs are cheaper and yet you're still getting around the same amount of opt-ins, well, that's a great thing. I mean, as far as like, you haven't seen a decline in the conversions into like warmer leads, but those colder leads could also still be a channel for you if you're giving them things that they are inclined to share. And so what is it that you have that can be some kind of social currency, like a joke, right? If you tell me a joke, and I remember it, I remember it because when I share it with other people, it makes me look funny, right? What can you share with your audience, no matter who it is, so that you become more known in whatever space that you're, you know, want to be known in. And so what tends to be the type of stuff other than the obvious stuff, emotional stuff and things like that is something that's counterintuitive, something that like, what is the common everyday wisdom? And how can you take aim at that, right? Nobody's buying a diet book, that is about eating less and exercising more. Everyone knows that it works, but, you know, everyone knows it. And so therefore that's not interesting, but tell me a diet that, you know, I only eat bacon and uh, (laughs) cheese and McDonald's and now you have my interest because that doesn't seem possible. Right. So, you know, what can you turn that would make people be like, well, how is that possible? Or tell me more. And if you can do something like that, you really can leverage this mass, distribution right now. And everybody being online, you know, I, I was watching YouTube of this female comedian in Canada, who did this spot where she, her future self comes and gives her some advice, but can't tell her that it's a pandemic. And so she's like, it's hilarious. Her name is Julie something. I don't remember. But like, I went to her channel and I subscribed to her channel because I thought she was hilarious. But like up until this point, it was like she was getting like 12,000 views per video. This video has 3 million. And like now, every video has got like some significant juice. And I would imagine this woman will be on television in a short time. (laughs) Because like, all of a sudden, everyone's sitting at home, and you create one good thing, right? Like you can go mass. And I've had that with other clients. I mean, she's not a client. Don't know her at all. Just a fan. But like (laughs) I have a friend who's a client, Wes Watson. He has a show called Penitentiary Life, and he was the head of the white gangs in the Southern California prison system. And, you know, he got out of prison like two years ago. He was making 18 cents an hour. He now makes about one hundred and twenty five K a month as a YouTube personality. And it took just one video for like people to jump on it. Right. So now is the time to be creative. Now is the time to create messaging that maybe you wouldn't have, because if you hit it and there's more likelihood of things being shared, people are bored, there's opportunity here. And that's, I guess, my point.
1: I mean, that's exactly what Ryan has been talking about too, you know, through Digital Marketer for the past month is even if you're not converting, now's the time to start growing your audience. And that's why, you know, within the first couple of weeks of, everything kind of shifting and having to go into quarantine is they, you know, we decided to open up our library of certifications completely for free. And we knew off the bat, we weren't going to make, you know, obviously, you're not making revenue when you're giving away your most valuable product for free. But what we did do is get 60,000 new subscribers that have never had experience with our brand before. So while on the front end, I think it looks like You might not make a profit, but if you do take a bit of a risk or do something that allows, I think, people to start recognizing or resonate, just resonating with your brand, then you're going to see payoffs on the back end from being able to generate more awareness in general. And I think that's true for any niche. I mean, right now I know the... um, I think the like exercise and like fitness apps are blowing up. But to be honest, the first fitness app I used was actually I didn't pay for it. I did a fitness, you know, gurus free YouTube, 14 day challenge to see if I would even want the app. And after the 14 day challenge that she created within, she was doing it along with her followers for 14 days during the first 14 days of you know, the pandemic. And then I immediately bought the app because I got a taste and I had never, never even seen her YouTube channel before. But I think it's just that learning to start growing your audience in a different way and then being able to shift when you I think you hadn't expected in a way you hadn't expected to, I think.
0: Yeah. And imagine if that guru had stopped producing content. Mm-hmm. said, okay, like, oh, I'm going to freak out. I don't know what to do now. Like, that's that's exactly what you got to do. You got to double down on it. And I mean, to Ryan's point, he says, "Well, continue to stay out there in front of your audience. There's some businesses that don't have the war chest to be able to do that. Like, there are businesses, mm-hmm. but we know, like, they are just hand to mouth every single month. And that's the way that they operate. And very challenging to do that. But obviously, it sort of reiterates the fact that you probably should have a rainy day fund you know if if you don't like get one as soon as possible not only from a personal perspective but also from a business perspective it only makes sense but the point is like now is the time to be able to do that like that guru like we're seeing that exploding in our space right now like with the customers Mm -hmm. that we're seeing that niche health and wellness anything related to that niche is exploding other ones travel well you know kind of tough times right now and then there's ones that are sort of in the middle but they've been laying the groundwork for that for years and all those customers of ours are now triple quadrupling you know 10xing their ad spend
2: mm-hmm. because
0: they're they have laid the groundwork for it but if they decided at some point oh i'm just going to give up and no longer do this and no longer put out useful content you wouldn't have a new customer and amanda powell right now and i think that's the thing is like he, that stuff doesn't even you don't even have to put a whole lot of ad spend behind it you can just create it organically
1: Oh yeah, and I gotta say, I already have like a, you know, just coming from my demographic, I already have a whole folder of vacation spots based on the ads (laughs) I've been targeted (laughs) on. Like, I want to go to Tahiti and stay at this resort, and (laughs) maybe not quite in reach, but uh, they've I've been getting targeted with some pretty beautiful uh, blue oceans. I'll say that.
2: (laughs) I remember this is my second Dan Kennedy story. I don't, and generally like, it's not like Dan Kennedy is the only person I've learned from, but uh, <laughs> apparently they're relevant Always here. Good stories though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had this coaching program, right. And I had no other products except my coaching program and I wanted to have some front end products, but I was afraid that if I took my best ideas or took any ideas from my coaching program, I would be disincentivizing the purchase of my coaching program. And so Dan had this coaching, consulting, bootcamp, home study course, whatever, and it came with four calls and I was listening to one of the calls and someone asked that exact question. I was too uh, scared to ask the question, I guess. Um, And someone said like, you know, I have this coaching program, I have no front ends to get new customers. And obviously it's easier to sell a coaching program to someone who's bought something from you and knows something about you than to sell someone into a coaching program cold. But I don't want to take the ideas from my coaching program or I'll cannibalize it. I remember even like I can hear him saying it because like it was so profound for me at the time. Now it seems so obvious, but back then it was so not obvious. He he just laughed at him first. Then he said, Bubba, which I thought was kind of weird to call someone (laughs) Bubba. And he said, Bubba, you just don't get it. You take your best ideas and you put it in that front end. That's what's going to make them want to buy the coaching program. And the manifesto, like, you know, that really changed my life. I just took that one step further. I took some of my best ideas and I gave them away for free. Mm-hmm. And that made a tremendous amount of people then want to be coached by me. Had I not given them away for free, I don't know that I would have ever had that, like, that happened for me. So it's the same for every business. Like, now is the time that you can establish really goodwill by giving away some of your best ideas. Make sure that those best ideas don't, like, compete with, like eliminating the sale, but that doesn't mean, you know, like people are always scared. Like what if someone steals my idea? That's the least thing you should be concerned about. Like most people won't even make the time to listen to your idea. So like, if you can get people to like consume anything of yours, you're winning. You'll win now and you'll win in the long run. And it's not about being abundance-minded or scarcity-minded. It's about being a pragmatist. And getting mental real estate is difficult. And right now, people are spending more time online than ever before. And therefore, your opportunity to get in front of them is higher than ever before. They're, the opportunity for them to share that is bigger than ever before. And the people that seize upon that are gonna grow. And the people that retreat are probably going to continue to get smaller and smaller. And that's just, that's just the way life works.
0: Yeah, it's a major point. And I think for somebody who's transitioning from offline to online, especially, that's a lesson that's, I think, we know inherently after learning it, but that's not a lesson that is conventional wisdom for most people. Why would I give away my best stuff? I want to hold that in reserve. But in fact, giving away your best stuff, and if it's in a small bite-sized chunk that they're going to consume... Mm -hmm that's the key, and implement and get a specific desired end result, they're like, oh, my God, that guy knows what he's talking about. Just imagine what he has that I haven't seen yet. It's completely counterintuitive. The one caveat to that is when I launched my first how to invest in real estate program, I gave away an ebook called The Five Steps to Flipping Houses, and it actually gave away the entire solution in five steps, so they never bought my course. So <laughs> there, 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 is a, there is a part to that where you go a little bit too far. But yes. it's counterintuitive to most people, especially new people online, for sure.
2: Anytime I'm being interviewed or anytime I get the chance to talk to an audience that's outside of the audience I normally get to talk to, I try, especially when there's entrepreneurs or business owners, I try and share this one like way of thinking type of strategy that has what I see in all the business coaching that I've done, probably the biggest mistake that I see most entrepreneurs make. And I just... I want to share this one thought, this one idea, because it's, it's really something that I don't think if I, if they don't hear it from me, they might not hear it. And that is, is that it's a strategy based on, like, I developed it for myself, because I'm a highly flawed individual. I'm a procrastinator, I'm a perfectionist, I I avoid conflict, I'm not money motivated, like, you know, all the things that really kind of would interfere with an entrepreneur being successful. But one thing that I'm different than most, I guess, is that I always had a strong enough ego to recognize one, I guess, an ego to recognize one, that I could design the business any way I wanted. And two, the self knowledge after keeping a journal for like 25 years of who I really was. So most entrepreneurs in my position would then try to change themselves because they should be like this if they're going to have a business. And I've never approached things like that. I always approach things like it's my business, I make the rules, I design it so like the question that i had when designing my business or when i've helped clients shift their business is how does a entrepreneur at the helm of a business who is a procrastinator who is a perfectionist who is anti-confrontation who is not financially motivated grow a successful business not by changing but by designing a business where those things don't matter right so like i sold programs. I recognized really early on that the idea of me creating a program like in some room was never going to happen. It would, you could put, lock me in that room, come back two years later, I'd still be working on the program, right? Like that, like no matter how hard I worked on it, it wouldn't be right, like whatever. So, my business was built and the way I built programs was I sold it first. I sold the coaching program first, and then I had to show up at Wednesdays at 3 p.m. with the next module or risk public humiliation and millions of dollars worth of refunds. (laughs) And then guess what? It got done. But I found out, like, no matter when I started it, it always got done at 2.59 Wednesday afternoon, right? Like, that's when it got done. And then the financial motivation part, like, I just, I created a very aggressive profit-sharing so that my team was looking at the, profit. the profits were paid every month to my employees. And you know I had a small team, it wasn't like we ever had a huge business. So like, let's say there were 10 people on my team, 20% of each month's profits got split up between the 10. And so every week they got the financials and they were strategizing, how do, we make, you know, how do we make our number this month? And then once they made the number, like now every dollar that's being brought in, 20 cents is going to them, right? Because we're digital products, it's mostly all profit. And that like cured the business from not being financially motivated because I'm not, right? And then the lack of confrontation, guess what? My team made a lot more money certain months than their entire salary, like in the profit sharing. So when someone wasn't carrying their weight or someone dropped the ball and therefore cost the rest of the team members, they told me who I needed to get rid of, right? (laughs) So like, you know, so I built a business that really could thrive even with my flaws. And I don't see entrepreneurs do that. I I see most entrepreneurs make the mistake of thinking they should be like whatever they've read, whatever they like see other entrepreneurs. And it's a shame because your business is your creation and you have the ability to, outthink your flaws outthink like your issues so that the business succeeds in spite of that and i just try and always share that with people because that's not a message that i think most people hear it's not just about focusing on strengths it's about really understanding your weaknesses and making them irrelevant
0: so true and it's um, the, if you have the perfection mindset it, it's like it's very challenging as an entrepreneur because you will never release you know version 1.0 i think reed Hoffman said it once, if you're not embarrassed by your first version of your product, you've released it too late.
2: You know, I read this, which as a perfectionist, I, I hate even revealing it, but I think it's true. And that's why I still remember it. It said perfectionism is about trying to get the world to believe something about yourself that you don't believe about yourself. right? Like, you know, because you believe that you're going to be judged by this and you're not really that. And so this is going to be the thing. Right. And that's hard to overcome. Right. But it's easy to outthink. And that's my point. Right. It's a really
0: simple thing. And like everybody who's listening to this and maybe, you know, maybe you are offline. You're trying to figure out how to get online and maybe you found this podcast because you're like, oh, I need Facebook ads, you know, for that or however you found us. But like that perfection mindset is a real challenge. Like I struggled big time with it. As well, and then when I realized it was actually it was the Lean Startup that I read, by Eric Reese. and you know it sounds like you, oh, that's the same kind of philosophy. Of course, that's where the term pivot came from that everybody talks about <laughs> now. But the point is, is like minimally viable product. You don't have to have it perfect. Like why does Microsoft every version of like Microsoft Windows always had tons of bugs in it? Because they released it and then figured out the bugs after that. And I yeah, think the first iPhone no cut and paste yeah like crazy <laughs> every
1: iPhone software update I think <laughs> it's
0: unbelievable. It's unbelievable yeah so true and you know I even see this with my internal teams right now it's like well you know do this this way or manage your teams this way release this and get this sort of project or this program or this you know new sort of feature of our products out there on the market now it's like well you know, that's not how Steve Jobs would do it. It's like people have this idea of like, oh, to be an entrepreneur, to be like Steve Jobs. Like, no, like there was only one Steve Jobs, but most entrepreneurs are like highly flawed individuals. (laughs) And Uh, he
2: was highly flawed, so. He was as
0: well. But, you know, he's considered like this genius, didn't have to ask the, you know, anyone like, he knew what the market wanted, even though they didn't know what they wanted kind of thing. (laughs) it's like as an entrepreneur, I mean, you just release it and it's, you know, if it is an online business or it is another product that might not make you a million dollars, but at least will help pay your payroll or keep you in business through this challenging time, do it as opposed to being fearful and not doing it. Because, you know, still plenty of new, new product lines or pr- product offerings are going to fail. That's fine. The point is, is that, you know, you will eventually hit on something that's, that's new and novel. And you never know after coronavirus sort of somewhat abates, it might actually be the larger portion become a larger portion of your business right now.
1: And I think we even have a sticker that we send to our customers and that everyone has like stuck onto their front of your computer just says done beats perfect. So just stop trying to perfect something and just release it and then fix it later, I think is, you know, kind of the philosophy, especially right now to get it out into the market as quickly as possible.
2: And even I would say that that mindset is just as applicable as not only in products and stuff like that, but even the next action that your business is going to take right now to survive, right? Don't wait for perfect. Just try a bunch of things. I went through like a midlife crisis, like (laughs) in my early forties. And I was telling this transformational coach, his name was Joseph Friggio. His name is not was uh, (laughs) Joseph Friggio. And I told him about this. Like I would go into my library and I would stand there for like five to 10 minutes. Like, thinking like what is it I want to do? And not having anything to do, just like, what is it that I want to do? And not knowing what I want to do and just standing there like almost like comatose, right? Just in my head, what do I want to do? And he said, like Rich, do you buy a lot of books? And I'm like, yeah, I buy a lot of books. He's like, buy them on Amazon. I'm like, yeah. He's like, when you go to Amazon, do you go like looking for one book? And then the next thing you know, you found like five or six books and you're buying them all. (laughs) And I said, Yeah. He's like, well, you know, I think if you applied your book buying strategy to your life, your life would work out a lot better. Like go out there, like life exists, things are happening, go out and interact with them and you will find things. But sitting in your library or standing in your library, hoping that like something is going to come to you, that you're gonna like have this epiphany of what your whole life is going to be about is not only not going to happen, it's like ridiculous to even think it's going to happen. And so in this transition period, if the pressure is mounting, you know, more is done by movement than meditation. There's a time for meditation, but right now it's not it. And so like lots of little bets. That's why I think like that's the important thing. Like you're, you're never gonna learn as much about Facebook advertising or anything else until you start doing it. And so the question is, how do you do it with the minimal amount of risk and the smallest steps to get some feedback, to know, you know, that you're on the right path. And that's the best that you can hope for, like in the beginning, just knowing whether you're on the right path. And if so, then, you know, to speed up. Awesome. Yeah. Lots of little bets. <laughs> uh, that was a
0: writer downer right there. Yeah. And it's so true. And I think uh, if people can pick that up from just listening to this week's show, I think that's a huge win for a lot of folks. So get out there and start taking some action and realizing that, you know, not all of it is going to work out perfectly, but, you know, done is better than perfect. <laughs> so. Rich, where can people find you? where's uh, I know you've got a couple of programs that uh, that you work on through strategic profits. Tell us a little bit more about uh, where people can get a hold of you.
2: Yeah, so the name of the company is Strategic Profits. We're undergoing a complete revamp of our site right now. So, excuse me if it's not perfect in every way, kind of like what we've been talking about, right? Uh, (laughs) But that's just strategicprofits.com. But one thing I'd love to tell, you know, especially your audience about, since this is more of an online program, is that I think we have the deal of a century and it's probably going to be going on, you know, still, even when people are exposed to this podcast. And that is a program that we just launched February 19th. It's called Steal Our Winners. And basically because I've been in this industry for about 20 years and I've coached a lot of people, my Rolodex is pretty extensive and I called all the top people that I knew and all the top people that I respect and admired and asked if they'd be willing to contribute two or three times a year, anytime that they had a strategy that or a tactic that was working really well that most people wouldn't know about. And And they agreed. And so, you know, each month it's about eight to 10, mostly 10 contributions from different entrepreneurs, media buyers, e commerce, funnel experts, you name it, laying down a strategy that most people don't know about that works today. And that's why we call it steal our winners. And if people act fast enough, they'll find it for 49 bucks a year, which, you know, works out to be like, a quarter to 40 cents a strategy. Um, and one strategy can you know grow your business tremendously. Uh, we'll eventually be raising that price. Uh, the reason why it's priced so low is because strategic profits is a division of Agora. And Agora is one of the biggest newsletter publishers in the world. And our front ends are 49 bucks for the year, usually in financial. Uh, this is our first foray, first Agora's foray into online and digital marketing. But That's the biggest bargain of anything I sell. And, you know, my prices go up from there. They don't go down. And also, you know, Ryan's going to be a contributor. He hasn't contributed yet, but he was on the live stream that we had to launch this thing. Russell Brunson, a lot of the names that people would recognize and then a bunch they wouldn't recognize, but are in the trenches actually doing the stuff day in and day out. So that's called Steal Our Winners. My name is Rich Sheffrin and my company is Strategic Profits. And that's all you need to know about me, I guess. Strategicprofits.com.
0: I love the guy behind the guy who does the thing that really makes the big difference. And that certainly seems like Steal Our Winners is all about. And that's the real juicy stuff. So thanks for bringing it here to Perpetual Traffic this week, Rich. For everything that uh, we mentioned here, all the resources we mentioned inside the show notes, as well as where you can find Rich, make sure you get over to digitalmarketer.com forward
2: slash podcast. Rich Sheffrin, Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Ralph. Thanks, Amanda. It was a pleasure being on. And uh, thank you. That bucket list number is check. Check. (laughs) All right. Until next week.
0: See ya.